back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today's episode is one that I've been waiting for for a long time. The whole season has been leading up to this conclusion. If the government is attempted usurpation of the kingship of God, what does that mean for the subjects of the true king? The obvious conclusion to me, a conclusion which I fought for quite some time because it seemed crazy to me, is that we jettison government. But that's anarchy, you say? Yes, which is why those of uh, us in this ideological group call ourselves Christian anarchists, with the mantra, no king but Christ. So in that sense, no, we're not really anarchists because we do believe in a system of government. We just believe that this system is God's kingdom, and that kingdom is real, not imagined or metaphorical, or subservient. Like the early church in Acts, we can live out the kingdom in real time. In fact, that's our call as Christians. We conquer the nations not by trying to lord power over them as the Gentiles do, but as being an alternative, subversive kingdom. Throwing off earthly kingdoms and denying that their power is true power is a threat. And that's why we see churches like those in China threatened, even though they're not grasping at political power. The denial of the lie of political promise and power is threat, which shouldn't surprise you if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time. In our season on nonviolent action, we talked about Solzhenitsyn and Havel, both of them who talked about the power of lies and image and how governments are threatened by truth knocking down their house of cards. And that's why a fruit vendor who refuses to put out a tiny sign that the government commands him to put out, or why someone taking a poster of Kim Jong-un why they are enemies of the state. They are little things, but governments are built on little things, on little lies and on big facades. It's a house of cards. This is why the church in China is persecuted, at least in part, while the church in the U.S. is not. The Chinese church exposes that their leaders are no leaders, and their rule is no rule, and their morality no morality, while in the U.S., though there is much clamor and vitriol in politics, The church isn't persecuted because it buys into the system. A system with infighting is still a cohesive system because everyone buys into it so much that they're all fighting to hold the power. But a system where one group denies government the power and exposes the lies, that is a danger too great to be ignored. So when I say Christian anarchy here, please understand that this isn't saying at all that there is no rule. Rather, it's no rule but Christ's rule, and Jesus extends himself through his church, the true seat of power in the world. This power, though, is not a power over others, but an empowerment through us to be living sacrifices and loving servants. The word for deacons and elders, and even the word for Christ's rule over the nations with a rod of iron in Revelation 2, when it talks about these individuals and groups ruling, The word that it uses for rule does not mean to lord power over or to rule over, but rather it means to guide and to shepherd. Thanks again, Rebecca, for that insight. Our English translations make it seem as though even the church is about rule, but it isn't. The church is about shepherding for and caring for. So for Christian anarchists, we emphasize the life of the church. That life is voluntary and members can come and go as they wish. That life is service-oriented and self-sacrificial. That life is compelling because of our unconditional love. That life values the least and the lost. 
That life looks so markedly different than the life of the world and the life of government. It looks like freedom of association versus birthright. It looks like accountability, where the harshest recourse is exclusion from the community of the church. And this, of course, is in opposition to the government's harshest harshest recourse, which is sword and the exclusion from the community of the living. It looks like service and love versus compulsion and obligation. It looks like sacrifice of self versus me first and America first. It looks like a borderless nation rather than border restrictions. It looks like fostering virtues rather than cultivating mindless, unwavering, and unquestioning allegiance. And while such a life might look foolish and ineffective, we, Christian anarchists, believe that it is the power of God, and we conquer through this testimony of our Lord and Savior, who is a slain lamb who asks us to conquer in like fashion. For no servant is greater than his master. Okay, that's all well and good. I understand. But I'm sure you're asking, what does that really look like? I mean, like, real-world examples here. I think I need to start by kind of giving you a, a picture of the alternative and just kind of recapping some of the things that we talked about. Uh, this is going to be repetitious from, um, from episode, I think it was 13 in the first season, uh, where he talked about you know Romans 13 part 2. So if you want to get kind of even more in-depth, I think that's like an hour, hour and a half episode, but go ahead and check that out. But we're going to kind of recap some of those things here and maybe expound just a little bit. So let's, let's think about the picture that we've gotten of government so far. The picture of Christendom, Christians at the levers the, uh, with the power of society. And when I think of that, I, I think back to the Georgia and Mississippi signed abortion bills uh, a couple years ago. Now, if, if you have listened to my season on abortion, you understand that I am extremely pro-life. In fact, so pro-life that I think uh, th- that aborting ectopic pregnancies is problematic. I think that's consequentialist. I think that's morally problematic, even though I can empathize and I can um, you know, ache with and I can understand people who make the decision to abort in those cases. But I'm extremely pro-life. But when Georgia and Mississippi signed their abortion bills, which essentially criminalized mothers going across state lines and, and things like that, it was pushing to criminalize abortion, I just, I hated it. You know, I wondered in myself, why do I hate this bill that does something that I think is a good, that, that preserves the life of babies? Um, and I think there are a number of reasons I hated it, but one of the ones was because it wasn't a Christian influence on government, but rather a Christian imposition through government. Um, it, it wasn't really government recognizing that it was a, a good thing. It was a bunch of Christians who kind of grabbed power and were able to use that power while they were there, but it wasn't really public sentiment to do that kind of thing. And now, I'm not at all uh, a moral relativist who thinks that that morality goes with public sentiment. But what I do recognize is that legislation doesn't really change hearts. And when you put a sword to somebody's throat, it ends up causing oftentimes more, more harm than good. It isn't compelling, but rather compulsory. And I would identify, I think, four major problems with such a type of political coercion. And first of all, God is always more concerned with the heart than with mere action. And um, 
Legislation of an unclear moral in society by a particular group hardens hearts. Now that moral might be very clear to us, but if that moral is not clear to the the vast majority of society, there's a much deeper problem than failure to legislate. Why is this an unclear moral that, uh, that babies in the womb are not humans, valuable humans worthy of life? That's a problem, and that needs changing at the heart level. Uh, putting a sword to somebody's throat isn't going to fix that. Now, I imagine that if the Catholic Church imposed this anti-birth control bill, Protestant Christians would be very pushed away from the Catholic Church. For as much as certain groups of Protestants don't like Catholics now, if the Catholics got in control and tried to prevent us from using birth control, there'd be a lot of people who would be so ticked off at Catholicism, and they would hate them. Legislation isn't compelling, and it doesn't do the work we think it does. And we've talked about that a lot this season. The second issue is that legislation focuses on negative justice rather than on positive justice. Tim Keller makes this argument very well in a book called Generous Justice. The biblical focus for justice is more on doing right to others, especially the marginalized. And especially in the New Testament, negative justice ends up being left up to God. The Georgia law is not uh, about positive justice. It's about power, force, and coercion. It's retribution. Um, The law is about what to do if someone does evil. It's not about how to help someone envision good and live it out. And therefore, legislation is primarily, and maybe even solely, negative justice. It's rarely uh, how figuring out how to help somebody envision good and live it out. Uh, the Georgia law doesn't provide more resources for adoption, for women's shelters, and all that stuff. No, what it does is it, it punishes for doing a wrong thing. It is only focused on negative justice. And it's an odd thing to see Christians so focused on Romans 13 and the government bearing the sword and saying, well, yes, but that's what the government's supposed to do. They're supposed to punish uh, people who do evil. Yet Romans 13 also shows us about taxes and that the government can levy taxes, and it seems like that would be to uphold the good, right? Uh, Yet Christians, especially conservative Christians, don't want the government taking money to do good, right? That's the church's job. That's, uh, that's the job of people and individuals who choose to give up their money, right? And it's just this double standard of wanting uh, really only negative justice and then choosing to forego using our money for positive justice or to forego advocating that the government use taxation to get positive justice. It is a, an extremely lopsided view of justice. And third, it just seems like making bills like this is a misallocation of resources. And I think of all the time and money Christians spend on politics. And thinking about legislation and, and politics being largely negative justice, especially for conservatives who don't want to use government to do positive justice sorts of things, um, I mean, what a misallocation of resources for, for Christians. Because we love Jesus because he first loved us, and we understand that love and grace precede a change of heart. Yet um, law actually hardens hearts. What, yet what we pursue, by and large, as the, the powers in society is government to exact law and to not do positive justice. And that's not only a problem because it, it, it 
turns things around. It turns things on its head. But it also places the seat of power as the government and not the church. But when we view the church as the seat of power and the church doing largely positive justice and any negative justice that there is is really um, temporary and can always be fixed, like excommunication from the community, exclusion from the community, which is uh, still it's hopeful for restoration. When we view the church as the seat of power in the world, that changes things and that changes how we view interactions with other people and how we view the kingdom advanced. And the church... Spending time and money and resources in the church is not a misallocation of resources because that's how Jesus extends his kingdom in the world. And finally, this, these Georgia and Mississippi laws um, were inconsistent in application. Right? It's, uh, it fails to see that this, this idea of biblical objective morality, which I agree with, um, when you start to couple that with coercion, it seems to me to demand consistent application. God showed us his law, he showed us his ideal society, he showed us what just punishment looks like, so why not seek strong retribution for other things like adultery or child disrespect and obedience to their parents? Why is it so appalling to think of those things as being run by the state? God showed us that the state, uh, that he likes states running those types of things and he likes severe punishments for those things. And we're good when it comes to regulating abortion and homosexuality um, and mottos on our coinage and stuff. But we apply this inconsistently. And that's, that's really what this whole season has been about. It's to show you what the world looks like or should look like if... Uh, well, what the world does look like when Christians have run it in three or four different instances we gave you uh, when, when, the, when we rule as the Gentiles do. And then also talking about the logical conclusion of where Christian thought should lead people if they're going to participate in government. We've spent a whole season kind of painting the picture of what interaction with government does look like, has looked like, and should look like. And I think being reminded of that here is going to be important to set up what I think the kingdom, uh, a Christian anarchist society where there is no king but Christ, but there is a king, I think it's important to understand uh, that, that dichotomy, that comparison here. So what is a picture of the kingdom, the big K kingdom? What is that like? Well, what if the church was distinct and separate? For the 2016 election, Jerry Falwell Jr., you know, he basically asked us to throw distinction away. And he said, we don't want a nice guy. Or was that Jeffries? I forget. But whatever, one of them, they probably both thought it. But one of them said, um, you know, basically, we don't want a nice guy. We don't, like, put the, put the Sermon on the Mount and the Fruits of the Spirit away because that's not what government needs. That's not what government calls for. We don't need somebody like that. What we need is a tough guy. Essentially, rephrase that. Uh, the church doesn't need to be distinct. The church needs to play like the world. The church needs to lord power as the Gentiles do. So what if the church was a loving community? What if the church held its leaders responsible uh, for things like abuse? What if the church was such an institution that its leaders didn't have huge power so that they were less likely to be able to abuse and to get away with it? What if pastors 
weren't showmen, but pastors were servants? What if the church was largely our community of trade rather than something like Amazon and the the secular market? What if we supported largely Christian causes and artists? Exchanging goods with one another and giving less and less money to organizations which support things like abortion or to, um, to buying things in the marketplace, which gives government its tax money? What if we were less materialistic? What if we were interdependent? What if our community had no needy among us? like the early church did. And you can say, well, most of those things we could do without being Christian anarchists and still pursuing government. And maybe that's kind of the case, but I think part of the reason we don't and can't do those things, apart from the Christian anarchist view, is because the view that government is power is what makes pastors showmen. It's what makes that power hierarchy that power differential happen in our churches. It's why we can't stop shopping on Amazon and getting uh, things for better prices or being so materialistic. It's why we can't just trade amongst ourselves. It's why we can't have a lower standard of living. It's because then we'd lose power. We'd lose power in our society. We'd lose power in the eyes of coworkers. We'd uh, lose status. And if we lose power and status, then what good are we going to do in the world? Certainly, a big part of materialism and, and that kind of stuff is, is uh, comfort, sure. But a lot of it is status and power. And a love for status and power is why we can't imagine a world without a government in opposition to God's. So in one sense, Christian anarchism isn't that difficult to comprehend or to envision. It's just the church, or, I mean, at least the church as it ought to be. The the church that you see in Acts, that's Christian anarchism. Living as our own society, in our own kingdom, advancing that kingdom, and loving those around us. But in another sense, it is really hard to comprehend, and it's not something that I can help you to envision because you have to let go of so many presuppositions. And that's honestly what this season has mostly been about, trying to show you what your world really is, what your aspirations truly are, what the power that you seek truly is. While it's maybe a little bit harsh, the way that I I kind of see it at the moment is... um, you know, I think of the early Christians who were faced with kissing the bust of Caesar um, or not. And you think about that, and you're like, it wouldn't have been that hard. You just kissed the bust of Caesar, and you, you maintain fidelity to Christ. Like, what's, what's the big deal? I can kiss whatever they want me to kiss. What does it matter? I can serve Caesar and God. But that was a big deal to the early church, and it was a big deal for a reason. And we recognize that it was a big deal to the early church and and they shouldn't have done it. But we don't recognize that a lot of us kiss the bust of Caesar all the time. Or we send our kids off to school where they kiss the bust of Caesar every day when they pledge to the flag. We are serving two worlds and we're cultivating uh, this, this 
kingdom that's antithetical to God. And the more we kiss that bust, the darker our imaginations grow. The more the tendrils of all the weeds wrap around our minds. So if you still can't see it, let me recommend a few things for you. First of all, go back to Jesus, because he, better than anybody else, can break down those, those paradigms and those, um, those things that so confuse us, and just really listen to him, hear his words, think about what he is saying to his culture. Think about how that applies to you. Think about his imagination and what he really thought of the kingdom of God and what he really expects of us in terms of allegiance and action. Second, think about what the government really is, what it has done throughout history, what it has been, and whether or not that's, it's had a reform. Has it really changed? Go back through this season and think about what the government actually is. And then finally, think about what the church is called to be. And think about how our lives would look if we thought that the church was really the body of Christ, really run by the head which is Christ, if we thought that Jesus was truly seated at the right hand of God the Father right now and that we have all heavenly gifts secured in him, what would that look like? Where would we be spending our time and allocating our resources? You know, I, I planned this episode to fall on today for a particular reason. Today in the United States is July 4th, which means that it's Independence Day. It's a day that our nation celebrates its independence from Great Britain. Now, what I find amazing about this is that in our minds, we revere these founding fathers who um, could envision a new world, a new land, a place, uh, not only in terms of you know, exploration and like literally a, a new land to them to explore and conquer and all that stuff, but um, also a new way of life in terms of throwing off an old government, a government that we think was oppressive. And we've been celebrating such a day for hundreds of years. Yet when we talk about Christian anarchism, this idea that we have a good king who has freed us from this tyranny, that we have a life that we can live in, in freedom and love and joy and community. We don't have the imagination for it. Jesus Christ, our Savior, has shown us the way 2,000 years ago and has brought a kingdom that we live in now through the church yet we still try to remain enslaved to the little k kingdoms around us. I hope that you've been able to hear the words that I have said today. I hope that you have been able to listen to this season and that you have begun to see the enslavement, the, the violence, um, all of the terrible things that, that government and human violence and human coercion and, and power um, all of that darkness that government is. And I hope that you are, are better able to see as you read through the Bible and as you learn more about Christianity and what Christ has truly called us to, that you are able to see beauty and love and light. 
And when you see those two things in juxtaposition, this chiaroscuro of sorts, it's, it's just something that you can't unsee. So I hope that today you have seen that Jesus is Lord, he is king, and Caesar is not. The truth is, we can only serve one master. There is a conflict of interests if we try to serve two. The question is then, is Jesus really master? Is he really king now? Or has God abdicated his throne? My answer is, there's no king but Christ. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.